Welcome to PDI, boys and girls. It's time for another public display of imagination adventure. So hop on board and shush the crowd because we're about to step inside the pages of another thrilling bestseller. And there's no telling what we might find. for the Public Display of Imagination podcast is provided by Joe King, Jayvon Fettinger, and Zachary Motes. You can find the complete playlist from Milltown Road Band on Spotify. Welcome to Public Display of Imagination, where we talk to authors about their deepest, darkest secrets, the pet they always wanted to have, the superhero they always wanted to be, and sometimes we even talk about their books. I'm your host, Mark Dwayne Combs, with any luck, no one will ever find out that you listen to this show. And if they do, you can always play that I Lost a Beck card. And now that we've got all that nonsense out of the way, let's find out who we're talking with today. Now people know when they see me coming that it's best to move aside. I ain't trying to harm nobody. Today's guest is a partner in the San Francisco-based office of an international law firm and co-chair of its Privacy and Cybersecurity Division. He's authored six thrillers to date that draw upon his background as a privacy attorney. His first book, The Insider, was a finalist for the 2011 International Thriller Writers Award for Best First Novel. The Insider was followed by a trilogy featuring former Department of Justice cybercrime prosecutor Chris Bruin. The Adversary, Intrusion, and Surveillance are all highly rated reads that weave through the hacker-happy world of the dark web. In 2019, he launched a new series featuring Lisa Tanchik, an FBI special agent who dons her own cyber mask as she goes undercover on the dark web. She made her debut with Black Nowhere. Today, we're going to peel open the pages of book two in the series, Dark Tomorrow. Please welcome our tour guide for today's adventure, Reese Hirsch. Reese, thanks so much for setting aside the time. Thanks for having me, Mark. Appreciate it. I'm looking forward to this. I've kind of dug into your work, and and I've gotten interested in a lot of different volumes that you've got out there, and I'm sure we'll browse through and get to all of them eventually in the uh, course of our conversation but I got to confess right up front, I've got no experience with the realm of the dark web. And I feel like that that's probably in my best interest to some degree. I, I know cybercrime happens. I know that it's launched from a keyboard and it's driven by computer code. But my most realistic understanding of how it all happens would be drawn from cyber master criminal Gus Gorman, who was played by Richard Pryor in Superman 3. And <laughs> Gus wrote a code to embezzle from his employer all the half cents that were drifting about in the company's payment systems. I think that's called salami slicing, if I've got my terminology correct. 
but introduce us real quickly to the dark web and the world of cyber crime. What are we stepping into here? Well, uh, the world of cybercrime has changed a little bit since Richard Pryor and Superman 3, but but a lot of the, the same principles apply. Um, a number of my books touch upon the dark web, and that's a, a lawless place where a lot of criminal transactions are take place. Um, criminals love the dark web because it's a place where anonymity is available, you know, through the use of encryption. Uh, and a payment through Bitcoin and a, a certain sort of encrypted browser called Tor. Mm. That uh, and the short, the long and short of it is that um, that the dark web is a place where cyber criminals do business these days. And when I'm not writing thrillers, I'm a privacy attorney. So often, when my clients have their intellectual property or data stolen, it ends up getting sold on the dark web. I was going to ask how this became a topic of special interest to you. It, it kind of sounds like that that's a sweet spot of where because of the business that you transact, because of your clients, you've had to really educate yourself in this topic. That's true. You know, I think a lot of the ideas for my books come from real life issues that I deal with in my practice. And uh, before I wrote this Lisa Tanchik series, I wrote uh, three books featuring a privacy attorney named Chris Bruin. And um, much of that came from from the real world. But if you re read those books, you would think that being a privacy attorney was the most dangerous occupation on the planet. And, uh, and my, my privacy lawyer job does not expose me to danger that often. Well, that's what I found early on when I started doing this show, Reese, is that whoever the protagonist was in the book, I think the one of my first episodes that I ever recorded, one of the first adventures was with Brad Parks, and he writes about an investigative reporter, and I went away from that interview thinking that the most dangerous occupation in the entire world was to be an investigative journalist. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that to be a privacy attorney would be equally as tenuous. Right. I'll give you a little bit of trivia there. Um, I know Brad and uh, his brother, uh, Greg, is also a partner with me in uh, an international law firm, Morgan Lewis, and we're the co-heads of that firm's privacy and cybersecurity practice. Really? So, uh, and his voice sounds just like Brad. So, uh, <laughs> I deal with him almost every day. So. I really enjoyed that conversation. Hopefully, I get a chance to talk to Brad again. It's been oh, it's been a while. I'm sure that he has written two, if not three, more volumes since then. Let's meet Lisa Tanchik. She's a FBI special agent, and that title always intrigues me. Special agent. She butts heads with the cyber disingenuous. This is where people may hear the voice of Liam Neeson in their heads mumbling, I've got a particular set of skills. Where does one go to get their dark web Bachelor of Arts degree? Well, Lisa you know, definitely has a particular set of skills, and she um, she was always sort of a computer prodigy. And she was trained through a scholarship program uh, that exists 
at uh, George Washington University called CyberCore, where promising cybersecurity experts get a scholarship uh, and in return they dedicate their services to the federal government. And so Lisa came out of that program and she started out as just a consultant to the FBI, but she found that uh, her cyber skills were helping to bring down criminals, but she didn't get to participate in the fun part, which was arresting them and putting them behind bars. And so she decided that she would uh, take the next step and train to be a special agent, a field agent, someone who carries a gun. And that is not entirely a perfect fit for her because she is you know, not your stereotypical FBI agent, and, uh, but, but she uh, brings a lot to the table. So there actually is an educational course where you can go and learn this kind of stuff. Initially, I was thinking, okay, you're either in the military or you're in some dark secret basement room of Area 51. One of the two, you're either working with the aliens or with uh, someone in some special forces branch of the military. But you're telling me, I think you mentioned Georgetown University. I'm sure there are others. Right, right. Definitely uh, cybersecurity is such a huge field these days. And uh, with the pandemic, people are working remotely even more than before, which raises all kinds of new cybersecurity issues. So, you know, she, she came out of a traditional you know, sort of cybersecurity um, training program. But uh, then, you know, a lot of what she you know, brings to bear in the FBI results from the fact that she is also a student of cybercrime. Mm. Uh, as we learn in the first book in the series, she maintains a number of identities on the dark web and kind of keeps her finger on the pulse because uh, when you're on the dark web, like the internet, it, no one really knows who they're dealing with, which provides a lot of opportunity for uh, deception and artifice. Yeah. At this point, I'm kind of thankful that mom taught me and my brother to keep all of our money in the mattress. Let's let's meet her. She's brought into play for readers. Readers come across her in book number one, which is titled Black Nowhere. She wrestles with a black market underground operation in that book. And I'm guessing that is going to set a backdrop of sorts for the entire series so give us a little bit of a glimpse at Black Nowhere. Well, Black Nowhere is a little unique among my works in that it is very closely based on a real incident, uh, the rise and fall of the uh, dark web marketplace called Silk Road. Um, there was um, a young man named Ross Ulbricht who founded it. And so Black Nowhere, even though it takes some considerable liberties, it does follow the arc of that law enforcement investigation and that network. And I just found it to be a fascinating story because uh, it was sort of like Breaking Bad. This you know, young, smart kid started this marketplace with you know, ideals of a sort, and he ended up being one of the biggest criminal kingpins in the U.S. and controlling a large portion of the illegal drug trade. And uh, just following his arc and uh, Lisa's arc as she, you know, gets close to him and brings him down, you know, I found it to just be really interesting. And it, that is a jumping off point because it sets up Lisa and and sort of her career path. But um, in a lot of ways, Dark Tomorrow is a very different story 
because in Dark Tomorrow, Lisa is even taken out of the FBI to a certain extent because she gets read into a, a cyber warfare scenario. And so she ends up working with U.S. Cyber Command, which is the government agency that defends the country against cyber threats. Yeah, in book two, Dark Tomorrow, an email arrives that kind of sets off some red flags. Now, who gets this email and why does this email set off alarms? Well, uh, that email is based on uh, some true incidents um, and it involves a particularly malicious form of hacking uh, where the hacker will send an attachment to someone and they'll structure the email in a way to induce the recipient to click on it. No. And if they, if they click on it, yeah, don't click, don't, don't click do anything that. you don't recognize. Uh, but, um, but he does. And it sets off a powerful strobe, which starts flashing. And if you have epilepsy, that kind of strobe can induce an epileptic seizure. So it's a really insidious form of attack. And in chapter one of Dark Tomorrow, that uh, kind of attachment causes a seizure that kills someone. And at first, uh, you know, Lisa thinks that this is just, you know, a nasty bit of business, you know, and sort of par for the course for this hacker. But then she learns that the victim was associated with U.S. Cyber Command and that that attack isn't just a murder. It's part of the first wave of a comprehensive cyber assault on the United States. Now, book one, Black Nowhere, I want to circle back to that for just a minute because you told us that that was built off of something called Silk Road, if I if I got that right. That's and, right. And that was kind of a real true-to-life incident that I'm guessing you encountered somewhere along the line with your work responsibilities. What we're describing here in book number two, is has that got a basis in reality as well? It definitely has a basis in reality because uh, I did a lot of research and reading about uh, cyber warfare and uh, what uh, forms that takes these days. But uh, it's, it's hard to get behind the wall of U.S. Cyber Command for obvious reasons. So I, I took a lot of the publicly available information and extrapolated a little bit about what it would be like to be in that war room during an all-out attack. But with Black Nowhere, we had a very specific story, and there was uh, some really good journalism on the subject uh, about the rise and fall of Silk Road and Wired Magazine. Uh, Nick Bilton wrote a book about Ross Ulbricht and Silk Road called American Kingpin. So I was really, um, I felt some allegiance to follow the facts of the story, you know, even though I took some major departures too. Mm. Now, in this, Lisa gets the call. She buttons up her team jersey. She grabs a rally cap. She springs into action. I know that launching a Snopes debunking campaign across all of social media platforms isn't going to move the needle, even if it trends. Take us to square one. What's the realistic potential of a threat such as this? Is it limited in scope or is it invasive in scope and then what becomes the game plan what's step one in kind of 
counteracting what's in motion? Well, cyber warfare happens every day. Um, it's just so far been confined to kind of low level skirmishes and things like the uh, Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential election. Uh, but you know, there, there are examples of that kind of interference and, and um, you know, cyber mischief you know, between nations all the time. Uh, but what my book supposes is that for once it flares up into not just, you know, um, minor skirmishes, but all out war where all the resources of, you know, a sophisticated cyber actor are brought to bear. So basically all hell breaks loose and everything that can be used against the U S is used. And, I think it's probably, unfortunately, inevitable that something like that happens at some point, because, uh, you know, as I bring out in my book, it has been happening between Russia and Ukraine for some time now. And Russia has been sort of testing out some of these cyber warfare tactics against Ukraine, but has not sort of fully deployed them. I'm pretty much firmly almost convinced, and I know that sounded really definitive, folks, but I want to hedge my bets here. I think Twitter is somewhere between 68% and 83%. What's the terminology? Automated bots? I, I bots. just think <laughs> that the majority of what we see on Twitter is a source code that's just running information, and I've just taken to the... Uh, I guess the habit of compiling a list of people that I know are real people that I want to follow. And instead of reading a Twitter newsfeed, I kind of look at that. Twitter used to verify people. I guess it just got overwhelming and they quit doing it. I don't know. But in a situation like this, is it something that can very quickly just careen out of control to where it's almost running itself faster than you can get a dust plan and, and clean up behind it? Definitely. It, it's enormously challenging just to deal with kind of the low level, you know, cyber interference that's going on right now on a daily basis. But imagine how you would respond to a, an attack that, that does far more than that, that knocks out the electrical grid on the East Coast mm -hmm. or you know, threatens chemical plants or nuclear plants or shuts down, you know, uh, public transportation and hospitals. And that's the kind of worst case scenario that, that I'm looking at in this book. Okay, folks, here we go. I, I've got a lot of, uh, of banners. I've got a lot of posters. I've got a lot of sayings that are pinned on my office wall. This one I think is going to be one that I will mass produce and I will market for a reasonable fee. I'll mail you one for your office wall to hang over your computer. It simply says one thing, don't click on anything. That's, that's what you need to know. When you're on the web, don't click on anything. Don't do that. And we'll be much more safe. Every thriller needs a formidable villain, but every villain needs to see themselves as being justified in their actions Unless, of course, you're Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight, then you just want to burn it to the ground so you can roast marshmallows. <laughs> in, in this book, Natalia X is our villain, and I'm not sure if that's an individual or if that's a network of hackers. I suppose it could be either. 
But what equals success for Natalia X? Well, Natalia X is an individual. Okay. Uh, she's basically a, um, a Russian sleeper agent in the U.S. And she's uh, a, a formidable adversary for Lisa because she has very sophisticated cyber skills as well. And she's someone who um, is motivated by um, by greed, and uh, and and she's found a home, you know, being recruited by the GRU, uh, the Russians Russia's intelligence service. And she's conflicted in some ways because you know she's grown up in the U.S. Uh, she loves American things, but uh, she's chosen a side, and it's worked out pretty well for her. And so she's determined to assist uh, the Russians in carrying out this attack. And one of the challenging things, sort of what dr that drives the story, is that Lisa has to establish that Natalia X is working with the Russians and thereby the Russians are behind this overall attack. Because without attribution, the U.S. doesn't know who to declare war against. And that's true in cyber warfare. It's not as clear cut as um, someone sending an army or missiles to attack. You can have a, a, an enormous attack and still not know really who's behind it. And so that drives a lot of the investigation in Dark Tomorrow. I, I guess that's true. In cyber warfare, there really is no GPS location as to we need troops on the ground over there because the ghost is in the machine and could be anywhere. Characters and character development, we're going to talk about each just a little bit more in our next segment. Reese Hirsch is my guest. We're talking about his book, Dark Tomorrow. It's book number two in the Lisa Tanchik series. You don't want to go anywhere, folks. We will be right back. This is Marsha Clark, the author of Final Judgment, and you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of those who have become friends of the show through Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash PDI and become a valued part of the show. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash P-D-I. Your support moves that needle. We're at the midpoint of this week's adventure, and there's more great conversation just ahead. But I wanted to take just a moment to thank those of you who are podcast subscribers and those of you who help support the show. We love bringing these conversations your way each week, but without support from our podcast family, it just wouldn't be possible. One of the best ways you can show your support for the show is by using the links to Amazon found throughout the Public Display of Imagination website. Whenever you use one of our links to go to the Amazon site, we get a small percentage of override on your purchase, whatever it might be. So if you clicked on a book title but ended up purchasing a new mattress for the spare bedroom or noise-canceling headphones 
so you can drown out the crazy world around you for just a little while, well, your purchase helped the show because you used one of our links to get to the Amazon site. So if you're going to Amazon, please let us be your doorway. The sendable social media management tool is another great way that you can show support for the show. If you're an author, a publicist, a publisher, or anyone who uses social media to help promote your business, I promise you, you're not going to find a more useful application anywhere. Like Amazon, we've got sendable links on almost every page of the website. Click on it and take a free 14-day test drive on us. We've been using Sendable for well over a year now, and I couldn't recommend it more highly. One last thing. Don't forget to check out the host page for this adventure. I realize that you're probably listening to the podcast via iTunes, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Deezer, or one of a host of other podcast listening platforms. The adventure host pages on the public display of Imagination website are where you'll find direct links to the authors, their books, and their social media pages. You'll also see a link to the Inside the Writer's Workshop segment with today's guest that we just uploaded to the public display of Imagination YouTube channel. It's always one of my favorite segments, and we're excited to bring these extended author interview segments your way via the YouTube channel. So I hope you'll check out the Public Display of Imagination channel on YouTube and explore all of our fantastic Inside the Writer's Workshop conversations. Now, let's get back to this week's PDI Adventure. This is Bruce Robert Coffin, the author of the John Byron Mystery Series, and you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. It's a good possibility I'm not who you think I am And it's a likely endless situation that I want to hold you Alright, we're back. My guest, Reese Hirsch. We're talking about his book, Dark Tomorrow. It's book number two in the Lisa Tanchik series. Reese, I know that for every author, they have to carve out for themselves some landscapes, some real estate in the online world. We've been talking cybercrime and things of that nature, but I know you've got a website. I know that you've got some connections in social media. If people wanted to follow you a little bit more closely, what's the best opportunity for them to follow your work or maybe even to reach out to you about something they've read in one of your books? What's the best opportunity for them to do that through the web? Well, uh, my author website is reesehirsch.com, and I know you'll be providing a link. Uh, I'm active on Facebook um, and a little bit of Twitter, a little bit of Instagram. So, so I'm I'm around online, and I welcome you know any uh, any comments or feel free to reach out. And folks, we will have links to all of these places on the host page for this adventure at publicdisplayofimagination.com. We kind of use that as the nerve center for those of you that are listening on one of our podcast platforms, whether it's iTunes or Google or iHeartRadio or Spotify, wherever you happen to be listening, publicdisplayofimagination.com is the place that you want to go because you'll see a dedicated page for Reese's work and for this particular adventure. It will have links 
to all of his social media platforms, to his website, links to his books that will take you right to Amazon where you can not only see a complete summary of the book, but also read some reviews. You can make that purchase right there while you're there if you'd like. A guy in a brown suit will bring it to your doorstep and you can pick it up at your leisure. We do all of that for you on the host page for each adventure at publicdisplayofimagination.com. Reese, I know that setting can sometimes be a key to the twists and turns of how a story plays out. When dealing with a setting that's kind of tied to the ghost in the machine, how do you balance what's going on in cyberspace as opposed to what's playing out in real-world locations. Do you have a method that you try to find balance there, or is it just however the story unfolds, whatever needs to be in the text to get to uh, keep the readers on pace with where the story's going? Well, you know, I think that um, you know some readers hear the term cyber-thriller or techno-thriller, and they think it's going to be a lot of techie gobbledygook or it'll be uh, you know, people sitting at keyboards. But, but I think it's important when you craft a story like this that uh, there's plenty of room to take the characters out into the real world, away from the keyboard. And uh, because I think that you know, cy- the cyber realm is where espionage is conducted these days to a large degree. And it's also the new frontier of, of crime. So I, I think that uh, you know you can't just um, you know limit cybercrime to to the techies. I think it's it's really uh, just you know where criminality and espionage are, are being conducted these days. So with all the danger and physical threat that that involves. So I don't necessarily have to understand how business is being transacted and know every backslash and colon and HTTP to follow the action. I just need to know that the same types of things that may be conducted at gunpoint can also be conducted through a couple of keystrokes and a well-placed enter. That's right. I I think, uh, I hope my readers learn a little bit about, um, you know, the current cyber threats and they learn not to click on that attachment. But uh, I try not to get bogged down in the details of technology, um, in part because they're always changing. So, you know, when you write thrillers that deal with technology, in a way you're writing historical fiction because it becomes outdated pretty quickly. Huh. But, uh, but the basic themes and, and the issues and the threats don't change. And so that's what I like to focus on and the characters. That's interesting. The technology becomes outdated really quickly. And, and, and you're right about that. By the time you've got a book ready to come out, the platform has really changed somewhat. Right, right. It's, uh, you know, it's constantly evolving. And so, you know, I think nobody wants to get into the, the wonkish details too much. And, and I tend to avoid that. And I think the, the themes of my books, hopefully, you know, don't change or they're, they're timeless, because I think technology poses threats to us that aren't going to go away. And that, uh, you know, uh, that touch all of us. In Marvel's Age of Ultron, Tony Stark states that he wants to wrap the world in a protective suit of armor. His good intentions and best efforts produce 
Ultron, a rapidly expanding artificial intelligence who twists Tony Stark's altruistic intentions into a guiding premise that the world is its own greatest enemy, and hence the only way to truly protect the world is to destroy the world. Talk to me about the side effects and fallout. When writing a techno thriller, what are the options when all the right wheels are set in motion, but the guidance system seems to be spinning out of control? Can you go anywhere with that? Yeah, that that sounds like a pretty apt description of uh, my last book, uh, Black Nowhere, um, because the Silk Road Marketplace it was started with, you know, a lot of, you know, you know, idealistic impulses. Uh, they were kind of libertarian ideas that wouldn't it be great if everyone can, you know, transact business without government and interference, they mm. can do what they want, sell what they want, uh, and, and not have anybody overseeing it, sort of a free market. And, you know, there's some appeal to that concept. And, um, at first, you know, Nate Fallon, my character, who starts that marketplace, uh, thinks that he's doing a great public service and building a community. But as the, the marketplace evolves, it does a lot of harm because it's selling drugs to putting it in the hands of anyone who wants them, including young people, uh, selling guns and, and with no sort of moral accountability. And, you know, Nate changes too over the course of the book. So he goes from being this idealistic college student with libertarian ideas to this, um, you know, guy who's willing to kill and order hits to protect his criminal empire. And so I, I saw a lot in that story because the rise of kite, which is what I call it in my book, I think it parallels what's happened with a lot of big Silicon Valley success stories. You know, they, uh, they find an audience, a platform, they reach a huge market, they grow exponentially, everybody makes a lot of money. And then only later does everyone begin to think about the, the ultimate consequences of the platform. With with every coin, there are two sides to that coin, and sometimes we operate only looking at what we intended to do with it as opposed to what can be done with it. I think the common theme is, you know, whatever you create, the military will try to get a hold of it and find a way to weaponize it, and that's kind of the overarching stereotype, but... In many cases, that is true. Whatever we are creating for a specific purpose has as its alternative another usage that someone else could make of it. Right. And that's very true in the cyber warfare realm as well, because we are creating sophisticated malware you know, that, that can target other countries like we did with um the Stuxnet computer virus that the U.S. and the Israelis created to take out nuclear centrifuges in Iran's nuclear program. And um, that was a very sophisticated cyber weapon. And it was supposed to basically destroy itself after its work was done. But it uh, misfired in that respect. And now it's out there in the world. 
And it's something that uh, our enemies can then turn back against us. And that's been a subject of one of my books as well. And it's touched on in Dark Tomorrow a little bit, too. I don't think we're that many elections away from uh, voting on our next president by putting either a white pebble or a black pebble into the basket as it's passed our way. I mean, it just seems like that's where we're headed. Authors talk about putting their lead character up a tree and setting the tree on fire. In the case of cyber conflict, quick thought, firm decision making, and accurate counterpunches seem to be invaluable. Is there room for the backspace key? Can can mistakes be made? And does that open the door for the storyline or does that complicate things? Well, um, you know, it's it's definitely a, a cat and mouse game that uh, Lisa and and Natalia play. And, uh, you know, some of it takes place online and some of it takes place in the real world with guns. But um, everyone makes mistakes in the cyber world. You know, it's it's hard, even though there's a lot of anonymity, there's also a lot of room for leaving a trail if you know how to find it. And Lisa is one of those people who knows how to find the mistake and track people down. Because if you uh, look long and hard enough and closely enough at someone and their online activity, uh, you'll usually find that opening that leads to their real world persona. So very interesting. So very scary, actually. Do you play chess? Do you study chess by any chance? I'm sure you're familiar with the game. I think everybody has played it in the backseat of a car on a road trip at some stage. Yeah, I, I used to play it a lot as a kid, but I got to admit, I haven't uh, haven't played chess in a while. This whole cyber techno just feels like a gigantic chess game where Queen's Knight to Queen Bishop 3 could be the move that sets all the uh, pawns to rattling. And uh, what do we go from here? Definitely. It is a it is a chess game. And uh, the thing that was kind of shocking to me was just how prevalent cyber warfare really is today. You know, it's happening between all the major nations. It's just, you know, has been kept at kind of a a minor annoyance level where no one's prepared to launch missiles based upon it or or send troops. But, um, you know, how long can it be before things go too far? Things always go too far. And in Dark Tomorrow, they they very much go too far. I'm just thankful that Chris Angel and David Copperfield were not hackers because magician plus hacker were doomed. We (laughs) mentioned in our opening that you wrote a series of books featuring a male protagonist named Chris Bruin. Dark Tomorrow is book number two in a series featuring a female protagonist, Lisa Tanchek. Now, I know their roles are slightly different, but both Chris and Lisa traffic in a similar world how does the approach to the task change when the genders change are there differences that would be inherently drawn from a character's background or is it just a static job description to which someone fits into the profile well you know i just try to uh you know draw the characters as believably as possible but but they're two very different people and their jobs are very different too um Lisa, you know, as a, a cybercrime investigator for the FBI, is really on the front lines. 
and uh, of, of cybercrime and, and investigations. But uh, Chris Bruin, um, he's a little bit more behind the scenes, you know, like I am, but with a lot less drama on my part, you know, because he's advising companies that are dealing with privacy issues and, and cyber threats. And Chris is more of uh, the, the fixer, the guy you call to help deal with a crisis if your intellectual property has been stolen. Often some of our largest technology companies end up being on the front line of some of these big cybercrime events and cyber warfare events. And so uh, Chris is sort of their consigliere, but uh, he also ends up being in the line of fire from time to time too. Shortly before lunch, you get a text message on your phone from Chris. He's asking you to meet him for a burger. Before you can check your calendar and respond, you get a message on your phone from Lisa. She wants you to meet her for Thai. Who do you meet for lunch? Ooh, that's a tough one. I would say I, I would go with Lisa, though, because frankly, Chris has a little bit of me in him. And I know what Chris does for a living, or at least uh, I'm pretty familiar with it as a, as a law firm privacy attorney. But I'm, I'm more fascinated by Lisa's world at the FBI because it's a harder world to get entree to. And also, I've been writing Lisa lately, so I feel pretty close to her. So I, I would take the, the, the lunch date with Lisa. Therese? Hirsch, ladies and gentlemen, Reese Hirsch. Today we talked mostly about Dark Tomorrow, but he also has a three-book series featuring Chris Bruin, and his debut novel, The Insider, is a must-read as well. Links to his books, as well as his social media pages, are posted on the host page for this adventure at publicdisplayofimagination.com. Pick up a copy and start your journey. Reese, thanks so much for joining me. This was fascinating. I learned a lot about the dark web today, and it was a fun conversation as well, which I always look forward to. Thanks for setting aside the time. Thanks so much, Mark. I really enjoyed it. So, Reese chose Lisa over Chris. Little does he know that we've got an additional twist waiting for him on the other side. You'll find out all about it in our special Inside the Writer's Workshop segment on YouTube. So I hope you'll join us there as we go inside the personal world of Reese Hirsch. You can listen to that special YouTube segment right from the host page for this adventure at publicdisplayofimagination.com. You'll also see book summaries on the host page and find hot links to Amazon for many of the books that we talked about over the course of our conversation. I enjoyed talking with Reese about his work, and hopefully you enjoyed it as well. We're glad we could bring this podcast conversation your way. Whatever podcast listening platform you use, please don't forget to give us a rating and a review. That's very important for us. And also remember, the light at the end of someone's darkness may be you. I'd say there has to be a couple hundred dollars
Theme music for the Public Display of Imagination podcast is provided by Joe King, J-Bone Fettinger, and Zachary Motes. You can find the complete playlist for the Milltown Road Band on Spotify.